0: Amen. Amen. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to John chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 to 11 this morning. John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, And the mother of Jesus was there. Now, both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding, and when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now, there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and he said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifest to his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the living God, and we say, thanks be to God. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Our Father, as we just sing, um, I can not boast in anything. No gifts, no power, no wisdom, none of us can. We are reliant upon Jesus Christ for all we have, for life, for breath itself. For any ounce of joy we may experience this side of heaven, it's all owing to Jesus Christ. The fact that we're forgiven is owing to Jesus Christ. I pray this day, That you work among your people, your sheep, for their joy. Give us all great joy as we examine this text. And I pray for those who do not believe. I pray that as the disciples in Cana, this day some 2,000 years ago, they believed. I pray anyone who hears this message will also believe. So we pray now in Christ's name amen. I'm going to jump this morning uh, right into the text. And and just by looking here at verse one, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus stands up and wants to do something about it. I remember we lived in Turkey for a little while. And I remember While living in Turkey, we would see, especially Kurdish people would do this, I think, but they would flood the streets of Istanbul. And I remember on the outskirts of of Istanbul, what you would see is that whomever was close close by when there was a wedding, they would just gather in the streets, and they would just wander up and see what all the commotion was. And if they knew anyone, people would just then linger, and they would sit like they are prone to do in those cultures, and then music would play. And then a few people would get up dancing, and then perhaps a few more would get up and dance. And there was eating and drinking, and there's something wholesome, something healthy about such a scene. It was communal. It was public. It was out in the open. And we can assume that this wedding in John 2 had some of those similar features. The wedding in Cana, surely it was a large gathering. Jesus and all of his disciples come with him. And it likely went on for days, not just hours. The wedding took place not far from Jesus' hometown, and Jesus, the mother of Mary, was invited, and, and likely she knew the people getting married, Jesus and his disciples. Perhaps they knew them, perhaps not. Often weddings would be large, and guests would be invited just because they were in the neighborhood. A unique moment that occurs at this wedding is explained in verse 3 The wine is finished, it has run dry. And it's not a small matter. It's it's a social embarrassment, but it's more than that. The wedding celebration was intended to go on for some time, and this would cut it drastically short. And the most likely cause is that the groom did not prepare well. And there is some evidence that suggests people could be sued by their in-laws for this sort of thing. There's evidence that suggests the, the, the bridal the, the bride's parents could sue the groom. So this was not just socially awkward. It was, it was humiliation. It was failing to provide. It was not holding up your end of something close to a business deal. And Jesus' mother, Mary, she reports the news to Jesus. And I do not believe that she is expecting him to do a miracle. For if you notice, at this point, Jesus has never done a miracle. This is John chapter 2, right at the beginning. But neither has Jesus ever sinned. He quite literally has been the perfect son. And as Mary is quite often at this point used to doing, I think, she approaches him and expects him to do something about it. But something is about to change for Mary in this passage. Something new will now be manifest. And this helps explain what may seem like a rude statement from Jesus in verse 4. He says, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? In English, that sounds rough. It is, it is a, a rebuke, but I think it's softer than the way it sounds to our ears. Perhaps ma'am would suffice. This is a rebuke, a mild rebuke. That's how one commentator suggests we see this. But why does Jesus say this? For just in a, in a few moments, he actually does get up and do something about the lack of wine. So why does he say this to his mother? I think to understand this, we need to look elsewhere. If you look with me at John chapter 7, just a few chapters over, we see something very similar. In John 7, there at the beginning of the chapter, the feast of tabernacles was at hand, In verse 3. His brothers therefore said to Jesus, that your, go into Judea, go up to the feast, that your disciples also may see the works that you were doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And you see the parenthetical note there. For even his brothers did not believe in him. But Jesus says to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. You go up to this feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. So Jesus says to his brothers what he says to his mother. My time has not yet come. In both cases, he will not do it when they tell him to. It's as if Jesus signals to his earthly family, I'm going to do things in my own timing, in the father's timing. And this is a refrain in John's gospel. Just a few chapters later, Jesus says, My father has been working until now, and I am working. He's on the father's time schedule. So the second person of the Trinity does his works according to that foreordained plan that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have fashioned before the beginning of the world. And, and might we learn something from this? Even this small little little verse here, might we learn something from it? We may desire to see the Lord kind of get on with it in our lives. We may, we may want him to answer now. But the Lord will operate according to his timetable. That's true for all of us. Look with me now, John chapter 2, verse 6. Let's pick it up there. There were set there six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. And Jesus tells them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them to the brim. These are large water pots, 20 to 30 gallons each. And the servants fill up the pots. They fill them to the brim. And that too is a nice detail, isn't it? To the brim they filled them. Jesus is about to make 150 or more gallons of wine and John's little details, I love these, fill it to the brim. And I bet, I wasn't there, but I bet that as they filled them to the brim, some of that water spilled over. His provision is to the brim. The vessel could not handle anymore. It's a good image. Our cup overflows. Jesus then makes the water become wine. And then verse 8, he says to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it to him. And so here we have a summary. The master of the feast tastes the wine, calls it good, and it's better than that which came before. And the master of the feast is surprised and very well pleased with this development. He does not know where the wine came from, and neither did anyone else. This was under the radar. The servants knew, and his disciples knew. But this is a quiet miracle. And the miracle did wonders in their hearts. Never before had anything been done like this. And you notice the result. They believe in him. His glory is manifest. Surely by this point, the disciples had faith, but they had never seen a sign They had never seen Jesus' glory manifest like this. And that's how this narrative concludes, really. John goes on to tell us later in the gospel. He writes this, this is John 20, verse 31, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Jesus' disciples, they would go on to see greater wonders, wouldn't they? I'll confess that this miracle, water into wine, it's not the most impressive compared to what comes later. I think for modern, for, for, for modern folks, they, they read this miracle and they're like, ah, water to wine. Okay. And Jesus' disciples, they'll see diseases, infirmities healed. The blind will see. The deaf will hear. The mute will speak. Demons will be cast out. The dead will will rise, and then the chief miracle, Jesus will rise from the grave. After being on the other side of the grave, he comes back. So the disciples will go on to see greater things than this, but let this not be a reason to pass over John chapter 2. Water becomes wine. Only God can do that. But this miracle is meant to teach us more than just that Jesus is God, that he's able It's meant to teach us that we may have life in his name and that we are meant to have everything that comes with having life in Jesus Christ. So let's consider how this text does that. This this text preaches, if you will. It teaches. So firstly, this sign teaches us that Jesus is willing and able to forgive sins. The water becomes wine in order for you to know that Jesus is, forgive sins. This text does not directly say it, but the text shows us. Notice the detail in verse 6. The water pots were the kind used by the Jews for purification, for ceremonial washings, and that is the instrument Jesus employs. And he's showing his disciples, he's showing us something greater is here. Jesus will soon bring about a cleansing that is greater than than what's come before. On top of the Old Testament's sacrificial system, there were ceremonial washings for the Jews. It was appropriate to wash before a public ceremony, but the washing was often done for the wrong reasons. And Jesus, in other accounts, he calls out the Pharisees for this. Those Pharisees who made much of themselves by washing the outside of the cup while neglecting the inside, the cleansing that truly matters, the heart is what matters. The heart must be changed. For God sees not just outward displays of piety, he's looking at the heart. John Calvin, speaking on this verse, says, the Jews were not satisfied with the simplicity which God had enjoined. They amused themselves with continual washings. They undoubtedly serve the purpose of display. And then he gets a jab in at the Pope. As he's prone to do as we see in the present day in popery. Do we see outward displays of piety in our own day? Can you think of anyone? Don't point fingers, of course, but can you think of anyone who's good at elaborate or outward, perhaps even subtle displays of piety? Is there anything, believer, you are tempted to do that people may praise you? Perhaps that would be a good thing over lunch to discuss this Lord's Day. Am I doing works of righteousness in order to be seen by men? Or am I seeking to please the Lord? The Old Testament system was good for it was instituted by God. Its abuses were to be rejected. And overall, the Old Testament sacrificial system was an exclusive blessing provided to the Israelites. They were given the opportunity to shed the blood of various animals that they, the Israelites, may have their sins forgiven. The blood of bulls and goats showed the seriousness of sin. Death is the penalty of sin. And a substitutionary death is the only escape. Blood must be shed. And remember that Hebrews refrain, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Blood must be Shed, And it's not that the blood of bulls and goats are ultimately what pleased God. Rather, the Israelites placed faith in God to overlook their sins by casting the death penalty on another. And now, on the outskirts of Galilee, the man has come, that scapegoat that Israel has longed for. This will do away with the Old Testament system. And he shows up at a wedding, and in his very first miracle, he will show his disciples that there's something more to come. This old way of being purified will end. And he himself, the God-man, will die. He will shed his own blood. And all who drink his blood, that wine, he freely offers to all. Those who believe in his name, those who believe that it is wine that now purifies and not water, Or the blood of an animal. All who drink his blood in faith, their sins will be forgiven. That's why he turned the water to wine. Jesus comes to forgive sins. Secondly, Jesus turns water to wine to give joy to his beloved. To give joy to his beloved. The wine Jesus made was better than the other wine. It was new and it was better than that which came before Now think about wine for a moment. What is it? What does the Bible have to say about wine? It has a a great deal to say. At its basic level, it's the fruit of the vine. Psalm 104 says, it's not just fruit of the vine. it's, It's given to us, listen to this, to make the heart of man glad. That's why wine is given to us. It's a gift, and a peculiar gift, and it has a special effect. It can make the heart happy. On the other hand, there are warnings about drinking too much of it. To drink too much would be a great sin. It can cause people to become foolish. These warnings are all over Proverbs. Though it is a gift, it is also the cause of much pain when abused. Beyond just being a drink, however, wine is used as a symbol It's used to symbolize blessing and cursing. A lack of wine, for instance, is a symbol of judgment. Consider this from Isaiah, this chapter 24. A curse is coming upon a people, and when the curse comes, the curse devours the earth, and those who dwell in it are desolate, and the inhabitants of the earth are burned. Few men are left. And then listen to this. New wine fails. The vine languishes. All the merry-hearted sigh. The mirth of the tambourine ceases. The noise of the jubilant ends. The joy of the harp ceases. They shall not drink wine with a song. In other words, when, wine, when judgment comes upon a people, the land is left desolate. The noise of the jubilant ceases. The music stops. The wine fails because the grapevine fails. Wine also symbolizes God's blessing and a nation's favor with God. When God bestows his favor on a people, he gives them wine to celebrate. There is feasting and music and good cheer. This is just a chapter over Isaiah 25. When blessing comes upon a people, in this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of choice pieces, a feast of wines on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, of well-refined wines on the lees, and he will destroy on this mountain the surface of the covering cast over all the people. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord will wipe away tears from every face. We, we remember that phrase, don't we? He will wipe away every tear from our faces. But don't neglect what happened just a few, ver- few verses earlier. Not only is he going to wipe away tears, he's going to give you wine. It's a symbol. It's a symbol. Jesus is communicating, therefore, in John 2, that God has highly favored the people of Israel. The wedding celebration is about to come to a sad ending. Right in the middle of things, the wine is out. And is this, in a way, not like life itself? Not always, but common enough. Something happens that tarnishes what would have been a nice experience or blessing to you, perhaps even a small thing. Perhaps a vacation that you saved up for, but it's cut short because of an illness. Or a friendship that, over time, just sours, and it's not as rich as it used to be. Perhaps it brings you some sorrow. This is a a fallen world, and and here in this chapter we see just a a, a slight. We we see a small sorrow, don't we? In a in a way. It's a, it's a big deal, as I said before. But another way, it's okay. We can get past this. It's not death. It's not divorce. But it is a sorrow. I, I suspect that there are things. In, in your life, perhaps, perhaps a small thing, perhaps a half sorrow that, that causes you some grief. And, and here, by Jesus covering up this social embarrassment, by covering up what might have been a lawsuit or something like that, he shows us that he cares not just about covering up those, those grand difficulties, but he cares about those small things too, For in his kingdom, all will be made right. There will not be any sorrow. There will not be a half sorrow. There will not be any sorrow. You remember when Christ, when he looks over Jerusalem, he weeps over the misery he has witnessed in it. And he weeps because so many would not come to him for relief. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, oh, that you would come to me like chicks to a hen and I would give you rest he laments because he has witnessed so much unbelief that people desire darkness rather than light. And this is true of you too if you do not have the Holy Spirit. If you have not come to Christ, if you are still stuck in your ways, the Bible says that the reason you sin is because you want to sin. And if that's the case, God will punish you for it, He will find you out. What you see around you is a group of, of gathered believers of Jesus Christ. These are people who have admitted their sinners, and they are people who have sought refuge in Jesus Christ and you too can become like any one of these. You must repent, however repent of your sins. you can do that right now. every man, every Woman, Even the first man, the first woman, all the way back in Genesis, were rebels against God. Early on in Genesis, we read that mankind only did evil continually. And throughout history, there has been strife between families, tribes, nations. Women have been exploited. The poor have been exploited. There's greed and selfishness, murder, all sorts of immorality, Not a single person is free of deceit. Everyone you've ever met, a sinner, the lone exception, Jesus Christ. So come to him. He is able to save you. And not only is this world rebellious, we suffer the consequences of our sins, don't we? There is war and lack of resources This eats away at us. Everyone is unsatisfied with their lot in life in one way or another, truth be told. Work is difficult. Many do not get the rest or the refreshment they need to live healthy lifestyles. There's disease, there's death. And on top of that are all those small things I talked about a moment ago those small things that make life on earth uncomfortable. This world is not paradise. And if you're in Christ, you can rejoice. Because this world is not your home. In the midst of the world, Jesus has come, and where Jesus goes, the point of this text, joy follows. That's why he makes the water into wine. When Jesus comes near a town, the kingdom of God has come near you. That's That's the phrase. You remember when his disciples go out and they preach and they heal? Jesus tells them at that point, when you go, in my name, tell that town that the kingdom of God has come near. When a society, one full of darkness, when a, when, a, when a society full of every form of evil, when that society has missionaries come through, when that society sees churches planted and the gospel preached and sinners get saved, it is right to say that the kingdom of God has come near. It's right to say that Jesus has come to that town. And therefore, it is only right that there be wine to drink. There must be music. There must be singing. Christians are commanded to sing. There must be feasting. There must be rejoicing. And there must be wine. For where Jesus goes, joy also goes. And where there's joy, there's wine, according to the Bible. And this is not to say that the Christian life is is all merrymaking and singing and dancing. There's a time and a place for rejoicing, but there's a time and a place for weeping. We are not yet in heaven, and as long as we remain on earth, there will be times of sorrow. There will be times of weeping, John the Baptist, his disciples fasted. Jesus' disciples did not, and there was confusion about this. People came to Jesus, this is Luke 5, and they inquired because they're confused, and they said, Jesus, the disciples of John fast often and they offer prayers, and, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but your disciples eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make the wedding guests? Fast while the bridegroom is with them? Don't you love that? The day will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. How can my disciples fast? I am in their presence. This is a time of joy, for the bridegroom is among them. Psalm 1611 In your presence, in God's presence, that is, in God's presence, there is fullness of joy. At God's right hand are pleasures forevermore. So by turning water into wine, Jesus is showing that God is in their midst. And where God is, there are pleasures forevermore. the way to look at this text, the way to benefit from this text is to marvel that Jesus has come to earth. He is the God man and he won the battle. He conquered the grave and now it's all over but he's preparing for us a feast and we will one day sit with him and eat and sing and drink wine. In a small town wedding on the outside of Galilee they got a little foretaste. And how wonderful is that? The king is here, and he's brought wine. Enough for all to drink. Yeah, it's up to the brim. It's not going to run out. And if, it, and if it does run out, he'll just make some more. Jesus turns the water into wine, and biblically speaking, we must connect this with God's blessing upon his people. Jesus also turns the water into wine for our perseverance in the faith. This will be our third heading. People need things to look forward to. This is true in short-term context. It's true in long-term context. If you think of a college student in exam season, it's a little easier to get through exam season when you know Christmas break is on the other side. It's a little easier when you know summer break is coming. The work week is a little easier when you're a Sabbatarian. The work week is easier, really, when Sunday is coming and you come to church and it's a feast day. That's what the Puritans say. It's a feast day for the soul. I cannot tell you um, how much Sabbath keeping has changed my life and my family's life, because it, there, there's something to look forward to. I know when the rest day is, and so work, 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 and then rest. A professor, he actually challenged his, his students. His students told him, it's like, I can't rest on Sunday. I can't rest on Sunday. I've got too much work to do. I've got a job. I've, I've, I've got a marriage, and, and I've got to do homework. I need to work on Sunday. And the professor told him, I said, look, work six days, And take your rest on seven. And you know what happened to those students? Their grades went up. Why? They had something to look forward to. Put a little pep in their step. It aligns us rightly. Now, this isn't a sermon about Sabbath keeping, but it is one about perseverance. God gives us wine to drink that we may persevere in the faith. It's the day we partake, for instance, of the Lord's Supper. We get a foretaste of that great day to come. And as we walk by this table, week by week, we drink the wine that Christ provides. He gives us the bread, he gives us the wine, that it might strengthen our faith. That we might persevere to the end. That's why we drink it. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You proclaim it to yourself and you proclaim it to everyone around you. You remind everyone This is what I'm looking forward to. Yes, this is a nice little cup of wine. But one day, I'll actually be in his physical, actual presence. And when you can say that by faith, do you know what sort of motivation that produces in you? So think about that this week. He gives this to us. He makes the water become wine that we may persevere in the faith. We await our reward which is Christ Jesus himself. And we, as runners run, we too run, that we might win the race. And our reward is not a trophy. It's Christ himself. And when we're with Christ himself, we get wine. We get dining with Christ himself. This is, this promise of a feast and of Christ and of celebration, it pushes us Onward, Samuel Rutherford, Puritan, Scottish Puritan. He he was imprisoned on some occasions, and he he calls he, he calls I, I think what are his quiet times in prison as feasting with the Lord, and, and he he speaks of Jesus so sweetly, and and he says. He says, he, the, the king has come to his prisoner and he has brought his prisoner into the house of wine. So imagine that, you're in prison and in some sense, you have the sort of faith where you meet with Jesus, you're, perhaps you're meditating on his word or you're singing a hymn and you're so caught up in it that it's as if you're in heaven for a moment. That's what Rutherford says, And he calls it the house of wine. What a lovely and wonderful image. And what did that do for Rutherford in prison? It pushed him through. He kept faith. He persevered to the end. So Jesus turns water into wine for this reason. And then fourthly, Jesus turns the water into wine because he is the great bridegroom. If you spend time in the Bible, you'll become acquainted with the theme of marriage that runs throughout, particularly in John. And John 2 is just another text that points to this great theme. This is not explicitly stated, like the previous point. It's it's another point that John just kind of shows us. Is that a wedding? The groom is not all that up to snuff, and then Jesus saves the day. The groom in John 2, maybe it was poor planning, maybe it was oversight, Maybe he was trying to save money. He failed at the task. And in some way, every groom in this building has failed at his task. We have not provided as we ought. But thanks be to God for that greater bridegroom. He will never fall short of his responsibility. He will carry through. In the next chapter, John the Baptist declares that his joy is complete. For the great bridegroom has come. That's what he calls him. He says, I am a friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him and rejoices greatly because he hears the bridegroom's voice. And then the the culmination of John the Baptist's joy is is joy fulfilled. He says, this joy of mine is complete because Jesus has come. It's not just a foretaste for John the Baptist. He's been waiting for him, and when he sees him, it's complete. That's the idea for us as well. Relatedly, we could say we could say that missionaries and evangelists they're really in the in the wedding business of a sort. They are sent out into the world and they announce there will be a wedding. Many are unaware of this wedding. Many are unaware that Christ has come. They don't know the blessings that could be had if they heard of this invitation. And the result of this miracle, verse 11, his disciples believe upon him. Jesus, his glory is manifest in this sign, and they believe. And that is the call for all of John's readers. If you do not yet believe, this text is for you. One pastor, he says that in this first miracle of Jesus... It's the quintessential message of Jesus. That's strong. There's something to that, and he gives this analogy. Politicians who kick off their election campaign do so by delivering a speech that showcases what they are about, what they are running for, and what they will do if elected. It is a showcase in summary of what their whole campaign is about. Jesus is not a politician, of course. He is a king and no man can remove him from his throne but there's some help in this analogy his first sign regards so much of what he represents and we've just covered the surface the forgiveness of sins he makes all things new makes everything better he brings joy to his beloved he cares about our faith he covers up the wounds the bridal party And there's a notion here that Jesus will come to rescue his bride, his church. So it really is a a sort of quintessential sign. If you are not in Christ, I'll be happy and willing to talk to you after the service. If you are in Christ, consider these words as we close. These words from Psalm 23. You know Psalm 23. There at the end, the Christian, their cup overflows. And I might add to that, For our purposes this morning, our cup overflows with wine, the good wine, the exclusive wine brought by the king himself. Not only is he the king, he's the cupbearer, and he sets it right in front of you, and then he sits right beside you. Psalm 23, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. There is no one like him. We thank you for his example And we thank you that he is concerned with our happiness and that he provides righteousness for all who come to him. Work among us and edify us through this, your word, we pray. In his name, amen.